Stay hungry, stay foolish. Childhood is our primary launching pad, a time of life when learning is more intense than at any other, where we gain the critical knowledge and skills that can help ensure that we remain adaptable. Today's episode weaves together the thinking of philosophers from across the ages who make the unsettling assertion that with the passage of time, we are apt to shrink mentally, emotionally, and cognitively. If we follow what has become an all-too-common course, we denature our original nature, which brims with curiosity, empathy, reason, wonder, and a will to experiment and understand, and we regress. Our sense of who we are will become fuzzier and everyone in our orbit will pay a price. Mounting evidence shows that we begin our lives with a moral, intellectual, and creative bang. Today's guest makes the provocative case that childhood isn't merely a state of becoming, while adulthood is one of being, as if we've arrived and reached the summit. His life-changing proposition is that if we embrace the defining qualities of youth, we're not destined to become frail, dispirited, or unhinged. We'll grow in a way defined by wonder, curiosity, imaginativeness, playfulness, and compassion. In essence, unlimited potential. We welcome founder of Socrates Cafe, maverick philosopher and author of The Focus of Today's Show, A Child at Heart, Unlocking Creativity, Curiosity, and Reason at Every Age and Stage of Life. Christopher Phillips, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's a pleasure to be on your show. It's great to have you. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It's my first read of 2019, and it was an absolute pleasure to read it. We can't really talk about you and the book until we talk about your legacy, which is the Socrates Cafe. Could you give our audience a little background on that? Well, the Socrates Cafe is a place and space where people of any walk of life or age can inquire into timely and timeless questions. I have a Greek citizenship in addition to the U.S. citizenship, so I come by this honestly. And so what I'm trying to do is get people, by modeling it myself, to explore and inquire together rather than argue and debate. In fact, people tend to argue and debate before they even know one another. And I don't know how you can ever feel a connection with your fellow human beings to really explore things uh, and actually use a method for doing that exploration so you might well discover that you have more common ground than you might ever have imagined and so for 22 years now i started this in 1996 at a sliver of a coffee house in montclair new jersey a bedroom community of new york city i uh, at a time when americans were polarized it was during the impeachment proceedings of president bill clinton at the time and lo and behold it worked far better even than my own imaginings, that people were craving to get together and have thoughtful, almost empathetic discourse where, yes, you want to tell your story and why you come from where you come from, but you also really want to hear others and listen with all your being. My my grandiose plan had been just to have one group, that one group in Montclair, and believe it or not, after 22 years, they still meet every single Tuesday night. But it, it mushroomed. It, 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 there was such a craving for it that it mushroomed all over the U.S. I, I think we have well over 400 groups now. But what really caught me by surprise is that it became a global phenomenon. And so there's groups uh, 
quite thriving in, in Sujara, India. And two groups started by very valiant young women in um, Saihat, Saudi Arabia, and Al Hassa, Saudi Arabia, and Katif, Saudi Arabia, and at Bahrain. So it's it's not just an, a Western phenomenon, which would really please philo- Socrates, I think, because he didn't originate this. He's the most memorable, but obviously he was influenced by both the East and West, maybe the North and South as well in some ways. Uh, he And so it's not surprising so much to me when I go to a place, for instance, like Chiapas, Mexico, and engage in dialogue with indigenous groups or Soweto, South Africa, where people still retain some sort of vestiges of the, their original tribal democratic traditions that you get together in a circle. And you feel like you have to participate because the dialogue isn't all it can be unless everyone takes part. And you feel like you can't just say what you think, but you have to support your view with whatever evidence you have. And so it's interesting to me that many people from so-called non-Western traditions take to this and latch onto it and know it, even though they might not call it Socratic, uh, better than people from Western traditions. We've become so divorced from our beginnings. Um and yet I would argue more so than ever in these days of fast-paced capitalism that we need to hark back to these traditions if life is going to be all it can be. We live in a very polarized society today. And as you say, we don't really let the other side speak. And I love what you say your aim is, not just with the book, but also with the Socrates Cafe, to not come up with the last word, but rather to present promising new vantage points for consideration and open people up to think. It's the core of this kind of inquiry. You never arrive at a resting place. To arrive at a resting place is to be dead. Uh, it, it, you can be alive and still quit breathing mentally, creatively, imaginatively. And so every time you do arrive at an answer, which is a kind of destination, you, well, you have more experiences and you read new things. And so hopefully that's just a platform for further inquiry. Even if you think you know the answer or the truth with a capital T, the idea is to continually challenge your own perspective by putting yourself in places and spaces where you consider thoughtful views of others. That takes actually a lot of chutzpah in this time and climb when people are digging in their heels and aren't listening so carefully, don't care to listen so carefully to others. I think one of the reasons in the last two years there has been a resurgence of interest in our Socrates Cafe and our Democracy Cafe initiatives is because people realize it's not enough to just blame our political leaders or so-called leaders, but that we have to look at to ourselves and look at ourselves in the mirror and say, well, what am, what am I doing? Am I being more part of the problem or more part of the solution? And if I am being more part of the problem, or at the very least, if I'm sloughing it off on others to take the responsibility, then that's, you know, we're, we're, we're missing our clarion call to action. And action can actually be something like getting in a circle and, and inquiring into timely and timeless questions with other thoughtful souls. And, and you emerge from that experience, maybe feeling a little bit more connected and maybe feeling a little bit more of a sense of duty to dig in to the world and during your mortal moment, make a little bit more of it than it is at any given time. 
What I love about the book is this sense of transformation and evolution. You talk about how the word of somebody in your ear, a positive word, or even new information leads to new decisions. And it's one of the things that I got from the Socrates Cafe, that it gives people new vantage points that they hadn't considered before. But you mentioned even as a child yourself at the age of 12, that your Greek grandmother planted a seed for all of this in your mind back then. I didn't realize it at the time. You know, my grandmother and grandfather immigrated to the U.S. I have all their immigration documents through Ellis Island. And, and they came in 1922, dirt poor, from a beautiful island in the Dodecanese island chain, which is Dodecanese is the 12 islands, and a, little, a volcanic island called Nisoros. And she didn't want to come, but they didn't have uh, much choice back then, any more than people trying to cross the border uh, the, our southern border today have much choice when it comes to realizing their higher hopes and aspirations economically or any other way. And so it was her ability to sort of give me this appreciation for things Greek, not in a in a way that would make me not appreciate other cultures and belief systems, but that actually opened me up opened up my existential eggshell to be more fascinated than ever with other belief systems that uh, that was critical. I didn't realize it until I was 37 years old. I, I started this at 37 when I was at a very interesting point in my own life. In fact, to this day, I have these two tattoos on my arms, these Greek words. One is arete, which is to live a life of all around excellence in all dimensions of life. And the other one is meraki, which is to give soul and passion and heart to everything you do that I, that I originally learned from her. And that was dormant inside of me for a really long time until I had sort of my own wake up call in the nineties. And since then life has just flown by, but not in a way in which it's blurry, but in which I have really lived every moment meaningfully or most moments meaningfully in a way that I hadn't between, say, ages 21 and 37. I still did meaningful things, but I wasn't as much of an integral part of my own life as, as I was in, in the years since when I finally reassumed this reflective capacity and asked myself, well, what do I got to do to bounce out of bed each morning, not just for narcissistic self-fulfillment, but for achieving things during my time whether I have a year left or 20 years left, in which I can honestly say, you know what? If I get hit by a truck tomorrow as I step out onto the road, it's okay. Because I, I did that thing that not only makes my, my life a little bit more worth living, but that of other people in my orbit. And it turns out after all these years that it's affecting people on the other side of the planet that they've also Thanks to internet and social media, they've also learned about Socrates Cafe and decided to be the change they want to see. And so, you know, there's there's all these groups I've been telling you about in Australia, which is truly on the other side of the globe. There's a there's a thriving number. I think one of our biggest groups is has, has extraordinary number of members. For instance, in Sydney, it's gratifying and humbling because I didn't have a grand plan. I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I, I just was sort of stumbling and plodding along and that the serendipitous stumbling spoke to and resonated with other people. I think it's better that way than 
you know, to just say, okay, I'm not even going to continue unless I get a certain number of people in my group. And then if I don't have a hundred groups, it would never even occur to me. I, I did this for both selfless and selfish, selfless and selfish reasons from the get go in order to just try to reestablish a form of human encounter and engagement that bridges at least a little bit the chasms that exist between one human soul and another. And you talk about, for example, you going for this and leaving your career in journalism to go and start a Socrates Cafe. You talk about it like the trapeze artist letting go and letting go to jump onto the next trapeze. Yeah, you know, and that's a... That's a hard thing to do. It takes the ability to overcome not just fear, but perhaps dread. And to let go, even if you're living the most miserable life imaginable, well, at least it's something you can cling to and complain about. It can give you an identity of a sort. And, and many of us live lives of quiet desperation. But to actually quit using that as a club, as a crutch, I'm sorry to quit. My, the car, my car clutch just broke, so you can tell what I'm thinking. <laughs> no, to actually use that no longer as a crutch, and to let go of that is terrifying, exhilarating, unsettling, and, and supremely liberating. And so, I mean, how can I ever exhort others to make? radical changes in their own lives if I'm not willing to walk that walk myself. And so I was like that trapeze artist, not just once. Um, there have been several of these trapeze and letting go moments uh, it, and where you sort of feel that you're both flying in and in a free fall at the same time, that they that it sort of oscillates between the two. You can be filled and almost paralyzed with self-doubt. Uh, because you don't know where you're going. You you don't know how things are going to wind up. Uh, you have good years and bad years when you decide to live a, a certain kind of creative life that makes life worth living. You still got bills to pay, uh, many things to do. So you might do things in baby steps. You might do little lettings go. Uh, and And that can be even quite courageous as well. But I think it... it I, I would suspect that most of us have had in our circle likely people that we know or, or friends who know of people who've committed suicide, friends who despaired that they were never going to really be able to do what they wanted to with their lives or have lost friends and loved ones for you know life, what turned out to be terminal illnesses. Uh, I've, I've had all of those experiences, and I imagine most others, too, have had them. And then the thing is, well, what do we do about it? Uh, for me, and, and by living by these concepts of arete and, and meraki, you, you don't do these things just for yourself, but you do them for all those who couldn't do them, all your ancestors who couldn't achieve them. Uh, my Greek grandfather, who after whom I'm named, my first name is Philip, I, I, get, I go by Christopher. Uh, he died at 57, uh, soon after uh, filing his application for citizenship in the U.S. So I, d I do these things for him as well. I do them for my grandmother, my yaya. Um, I'll, but it's important for those of us who do have these opportunities and realize that we do have the wherewithal to overcome rather daunting circumstances to carry on 
I mean, just carrying on is a victory in and of itself sometimes. You know, just getting out of bed and and maybe finding that reflective space where if we have 30 minutes, even if we're exhausted, to own something creatively and take it on is really and truly a gift, not only for ourselves, but something that we can model and, and hopefully inspire others to do as well. That's what I, I try to do now. This is the last year of my 50s, and I feel like a child in the best sense, uh, since from 37 to 59 is when I really started being rather childlike and living a life outside of the imaginings of most of my friends from my growing up days. And, and I grew up in a sprawling, faceless city called Newport News, Virginia. You know, it's probably got more fast food restaurants and gas stations <laughs> than any other place on this planet. It's not a pretty place. Uh, I'll get clobbered for saying that, but it's <laughs> it has pretty areas, but not a pretty place at all. But, you know, and they look at me in disbelief. How in the world is somebody I went to school with? step out on a limb like this. You know, I went to public schools that looked like a bomb had hit him. I mean, really, <laughs> folks that should have been retired decades earlier. But, you know, you can either blame, you know, all those things. Oh, I didn't do X because I didn't do get a great public school education. I didn't do Y because my mom or dad didn't want me to. Or you can say, you know what? Screw that. I'm going to do it not just in spite of that, but because of that. And if I don't, then others are also going to use those excuses as crutches. And it's, it's seductive, but it's even more wonderfully seductive to, to change that course. Because once you do, it gives others less excuse not to change their lives too. You talk there about engaging your childlike self. And it's, it's the main focus of today's show is this opportunity. When we look at children, we look at them as needing adult adult supervision or guidance from adults while you say, let's flip that on its head and actually let's learn from the children. There's a lot to unpack there because we have childlike elements within us that I don't think ever die out completely. They never totally wither on the vine. But they can be dormant, and they may, and we may go through our entire adult life without ever reawakening them. So my argument in my book, A Child at Heart, is that we can and are probably likely to wither, rather and shrink like shrivel like raisins, rather than grow, because you know you you get caught up in the hurly burly of everyday living. You get caught up in trying to keep up with your peers, even. Yeah, I'm not one of those who just curses social media, even though it's a commonplace that can very readily and easily disconnect us rather than connect us. Uh, but how can we, no matter where we are in life, whether we're 10 or, or 59 like I am or even older, how can we make sure that until virtually our last breath, and even when we're frail, uh, how can we make sure that those moments are meaningful? And I think it does take those childlike qualities of creativity, curiosity, reason. Believe it or not, reasoning is a childlike quality. It's something that we're hardwired with. And I try to make that argument in the book that we may reason differently as children. We may be curious in different ways as children. We may practice empathy in different ways as children. We may not even be able to articulate that's what it is. But a human observer, an adult observer, as, as all the studies show that I pack 
in my book to share with the lay audience, they show that these are qualities with which most of us, from, from the time we're born, if not sooner, are wired with. I think in the, when it comes to human beings, there's exceptions to every rule. I, I, you can't speak in total universals. I do believe that some are hardwired um, to be probably sociopaths. I think that a canny parent who's observing can detect that and, and perhaps change that wiring. And in fact, I, I'm convinced that they can. I think most studies show that they can. But when you when you look at somebody who becomes an adult and is in his 60s or his 70s and makes a stock and trade out of out of lying and, and clearly exhibits the tendencies of a malignant narcissist, you, it's so easy just to blame that adult. But one must look at that person's trajectory and at probably all the missed opportunities to intervene in that person's orbit and change that trajectory. Uh, it, it's not just that it takes a village, but it takes an, a very observant, caring, compassionate, communal approach, parents, you know, friends, any, anything, whatever, whatever's and whoever's in our orbit to change those things. And so the origins of this book were born out of great pain, were born out of the tragic loss of my father and asking myself some questions. How is it that two people can have the same parents and yet turn out so differently? How is it that one um, might become so malignant and blame everybody and everything for one's problems and never accept personal responsibility? And most of all, what can I do and share with others to make sure that the generations to come, including my own young children, have uh, that capacity to flourish from the get-go, that they have that ability to blossom at every age and stage rather than shrivel. Because the other argument I make is that, you know, we tend to look at stages of human life as these separate, separate stages, like a rocket ship that leaves behind certain sections as it soars into outer space. But I argue that if we blossom, but from a rotten core, then that core is going to be there forever. So at each age and stage of life, we don't shed the earlier stages. They're still there with us. They're just, you know, larded with these new ages and stages. And so we really have to, as a parents, as, as in part of a society, and looking at society on sundry scales, all the way to the global scale, if not even just looking at it on a universal scale, there's, I bet you in, I know I'm rambling here, but I bet you in 50 years, we're going to discover there's other sentient, intelligent civilizations elsewhere. But we, we owe it. We owe it to everybody and everything, those of us who do have certain opportunities. We owe it to them to, to be these models of, of childlike evolution and revolution at every age and stage. I owe it to my mom and my dad. My mom was born in a coal mining camp in Appalachia in West Virginia. I owe it to her. I, and I owe it to my dad and, and the way that his life tragically ended to carry on and to carry on in ways that do honor and justice to all that he did do and all that he wasn't able to do and was even prevented from doing. So I think that 
notion of duty and responsibility. It's not a burden. It's something that should help us to soar to when we realize it's not just about us. But in a pervasive era of narcissism of so many kinds and degrees, I think it's more incumbent than ever to show that we can chart radically different courses and to always have that long-term vision, to always think, you know, I'm not just thinking about my own children and I'm not just thinking about wanting the best for them or for children today on the other side of the globe and everywhere else. But I'm thinking two, four, a hundred, 500 generations from hence and how my quotidian actions today might impact people to come. That idea where we all have a duty, and, and I see this all the time, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a baseball coach, whether you're a scout leader, your job is to improve the character and the future of the children which you deal with. And I pulled a quote from the book because I think this is really key in today's society. You say, never before has our culture been as child-centric as it is today, and yet never before has childhood been as strained and pinched its serendipity and spontaneity is fast disappearing in our heavily vocationalized, overscheduled culture. That is key. I think we overschedule children. We remove the opportunities for them to imagine and to play and to discover the world. Well, let's look at that. So obviously, I'm talking about people from a middle class and, and upper middle class backgrounds who have the financial resources and opportunities to do those things. It's a shame that we've created within our own homes, you know, these media centers. So you can just isolate yourself. We create these silos and cocoons. We create communities without sidewalks, for heaven's sakes. In my day, you know, we had these things called forests and woods that we could explore without worrying. And in this time and climb, I mean, I have very legitimate worries about where your kids are going and, and when you should leave and let them out your door. People of certain means start preparing their children two, three, four, five years old to excel in computer science and all kinds of things that wouldn't even occur to my own parents, thankfully, instead of letting certain things unfold. In certain Scandinavian nations, they don't even attempt to get their kids to read until age six and seven. They just let things flow and unfold. And they quickly not only catch up to those of us who are pushing our kids to read at very young ages, but they surpass because the wiring is unfolding and developing in, in far more natural and normal ways. So that's very telling, too. By hurrying up our children, I think I used the example of John Stuart Mill and how his dad pushed him at much too young an age to his detriment, that we inhibit our kids. We keep them from being all that they can be, including professionally, by trying to already think about where they're going to go to college and what they're going to study at such a ridiculously tender age. Now, on the other side of the coin is this. There are untold billions of children who have zero opportunity. One of the other parts that I, I mentioned in my book, for instance, is the children of Mumbai and how they live in levels of poverty that are so extreme that it creates a sense of impotence and resignation. And yet, and yet they still feel great empathy for anybody who suffers 
and it gives them great pain that there's nothing that they can do about it. So what I want to do in whatever time I have left is just to make those inroads to make sure that everybody has those fertile conditions that they can make the world a bit more livable and lovable, not just for themselves, but for others. So when you see a suffering person, that you do have the means and the wherewithal to help them in some way. Can I give you the most quotidian example possible? Yes, please. Just the other day, I was uh, in Mexico. My book had just come out there and I was walking outside of the hotel and there was this elderly woman carrying a basket of candies that she was selling on the street. And she had to lean against the wall as she was walking because she was, you know, very, very fragile, very, very poor, but still trying to make an honest living, bless her heart. And there was this harried young businessman making his way in the other direction. And she just said to him, would you, would you please help me cross this driveway here so I can get back on the other side and keep making my way while leaning against the wall. He froze. He stopped without even thinking about it in quantum fashion. He turned around, held out his arm, and she put her arm in his and locked the arms. They walked across that busy driveway to the other side where she was able again to lean against the wall as she walked along. But to me, it's those acts, those acts of everyday virtue that nobody sees. I mean, I was just one of these things that I just very luckily witnessed. But it's those kinds of acts when you really recognize your fellow human being and that they need just a little bit of help to get along to go about their day that can make all the difference, not just in that individual's life. But I, I truly believe with everything I have that that has a ripple effect. Whether you believe in an afterlife, it's transcendent here and now. For sure. I love the concept that we're on spaceship Earth and we're all crew. There's no passengers. There's something you said there, which is that act, the act of kindness that you witnessed. Because you mentioned another beautiful one, which involves Callie, your daughter, in the Sistine Chapel. I had this extraordinary experience. I was invited by two young women who are the owners of the world's smallest bookstore. It's, it's no bigger than my bedroom to go there and, and hold Socratic dialogues when my third book, Socrates in Love, Socrates Namorato, came out. They paid for my trip and my, it was incredible. Uh, I've never heard of such a thing, but I went there. And so we actually, we ended up deciding, you know what? We're going to go to Rome. Let's don't just make it a quick trip. Let's rent a place for a month that we stayed. And we took our daughter, Callie, who's, um, how do we put it? She's a, she, she can really, she, she's, she's a little high strung. And so we took her to the Sistine Chapel, you know, people speaking in hushed and odd tones. And of course, that's when my precious daughter decides this is as good a time as any to have a tantrum. And she just, I mean, her face was turning red and people were looking at her, adults, you know, as if they'd never been a child or never had children. They were glaring at her. And, you know, I'm, I'm used to people in the U.S. If a poor child doesn't like to be buckled, strapped in in an airplane, all these adults just look at her and remonstrate her. And so as a parent, you feel panic. Oh, I got to get the child to shut up somehow really quickly which is so terribly unfair. People forget what it's like to go through that spaceship journey as a child. And, but I was getting ready to really panic. I saw the guards start approaching us from all directions. Oh, here we go again. We're going to get kicked out. And instead, 
they started speaking to her and cooing at her and, and making all these gestures to try to just kind of redirect her emotions, rechannel them. One of them picked her up as if it was the most natural thing in the world. My daughter, who hates for anybody to pick her up except her own parents, they did it so fluidly and without thinking and didn't ask her if I could. And they just started swinging her around and twirling. And she just was in seventh heaven. And lo and behold, she she calmed down, not because she had to, but because they just created this magical ambiance. They felt empathy and sympathy and, and what I would call fellow feeling. Because we've all been babies once, and I've never met a baby yet who hasn't had a, or a young child who hasn't had a tantrum. Hell, I haven't met an adult who hasn't had a tantrum. <laughs> and so, you know, we forget that, right? We forget that. Adults get peevish and tantrumy when they're tired and sleep-deprived or anxious. But no, oh no, we, we tend to look at things in a really inanely hierarchical way. Uh, when, when suddenly it's the child's turn to have that meltdown. But no, it, 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 they still have that tradition of, of deep love and empathy for, for babies and for little ones that I believe that we've lost in so much of the world. And it was truly revelatory for me to the images of that event are still so vivid in my mind that adults who are security guards, for heaven's sake, could could just for for no other reason than that they just had that they were imbued with that sense of fellow feeling that they changed that moment and realtered that moment, not just for me and my wife, but for my daughter. And I don't know if any of the other adults surrounding really, even as they witnessed it, I don't know if they really appreciated what was taking place, but it's something that now, whenever I see a child that's anxious and having a, a meltdown, at the very least, I'll you know, give some sort of expression of empathy and maybe it'll alter the disposition of the very high strung parents who are trying to calm their child down, but maybe you're feeling tense and stressed themselves and, and taking all those things into account and just having that sense of fellow feeling. It's the ripple effect though, as you say, of your child witnessing that as well. So if that was you picking up somebody else's child and your child sees that, you're teaching them. And you mentioned John Dewey, for example, the legendary social philosopher and educational reformer. And he maintains we have skills in childhood which are allowed to atrophy rather than be cultivated. And it, that's where we must step up as adults, whether you're a parent or a godparent or an uncle or a relative, we need to step up and cultivate these skills that are in childhood. Well, it's a tall order. If you look at our schools, even the most expensive private schools, if you look at the poorest schools for kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds, there is that tendency to still create these environments that frankly lead to great stress and anxiety and atrophy. And I, and I think that that's a shame that there's there's so much emphasis on testing and and standardized passing standardized testing instead of creating an ethos of social conscience where we're engaged in community problem solving from very young ages i mean the Dewey approach in his laboratory schools was to create these experimental 
learning environments where we're all in this together and we're all looking at problems that we want to solve. First of all, you have to decide what a problem is and what is a good problem. What is one worth solving? I know many do-gooders who go into poor communities and they decide what the problem is without really even consulting the people in those communities. And that's that's horrible. I mean, that's that's so pretentious. It's almost beyond belief, the noblesse oblige approach. So I think that we need to radically reform and and I, and I'm speaking and I'm, as I'm saying this to you, I'm. My wife and I, Ceci and I, uh, who I met at a Socrates Cafe, believe it or not, and she's Mexican, and, and she had been a teacher in a giving classroom without walls for years on end uh, for indigenous children. You know, we've been exploring this radically because we feel that we haven't hit the sweet spot when it comes to educating our own children. And so one of my daughters is 12 and one is five, and we're losing, you know, the window's closing. And so we keep asking ourselves, well, what can we do to create educational spaces for young people that can help ensure, no guarantees, but that can help ensure that they do not atrophy in the years to come in a very difficult and trying world. And so we're giving great thought to how to not just, because our mission has been sort of going into schools and trying to institutionalize Socratic inquiry to try to create, you know, try to instill through workshops that we give to educators uh, showing them how to facilitate Socrates Cafe type inquiry. And, but then we've been asking ourselves, okay, we've made great inroads with that now for over 20 years, but is that even nearly enough or is it our time to maybe create sort of a model school following the Dewey and sort of laboratory model? Because if you look at things on a macro scale, Aiden, I think that people are afraid to experiment with their politics these days, with their forms of governance. They, they've lost faith, not only in their those that they elect for office to serve, but in themselves to be part of this experimental political process. And once things start to ossify, I think that human history shows that, you know, even the greatest of great civilizations, including though incredibly creative Athenian polish, you know, has its period of ascent. And then it has this leveling off, this stasis. And then, and you don't even really realize it by this time because you're so self-involved, it has this period of what turns out to be rather irreversible decline. People start turning in on themselves and they quit inquiring together. They don't want to be asked why. They feel threatened instead of wonderfully challenged. And I, I think that is something that we're facing today in the United States. And I'm grateful that more and more ours is a world without borders, because I think if there's remedy, much less salvation, it's going to be in maybe what's being achieved in other parts of the globe. Uh, my wife's from Mexico. They, they've just elected uh, the people here in, in, their, in Mexico are, are sick of the culture of corruption. And so they elected a sort of a, what I would call a leftist pragmatist for, which is extraordinarily different, uh, and against many odds, bucking a lot of on. But I think they're, uh, they're, what they want more than anything is just dialogue. The, the president has amazingly stressed their new president took office on December 1st. Uh, AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has stressed the need for national dialogue. And to break those dialogues down on communal scales. And I think that uh, model is something 
that can be applied the world over. And, and, and so then it's like, well, where do we fit in? Okay, so we want to create new schools, new ways of schooling one another, where we're all really, uh, without paying lip services, we're all learners at the same time, discovering and contributing our unique talents and stories of wisdom. But also, in a time when there's so much demonization of immigrants, uh, where we, where a president will point out one bad egg who crossed the border and did something bad and, and neglects to point out the nine thousand others among that one bad egg who are just coming out of a sense of uh, wanting to work hard, but actually be able to advance in life as a result. So I'm trying to, to because I speak Spanish fluently, I've been going to Mexico to create bilingual uh, Socrates cafes and, di- and democracy cafe ongoing initiatives. And that really has struck some pay dirt because there's as I'm sure you know, there's many American and Canadian expatriates who live in Mexico. So what I've been targeting are communities where there's sizable Mexican, U.S. and Canadian populations and and the best place in space to get them all to come together where they all feel welcome is a public library. And so I've been creating these bilingual democracy cafes, Café Democracia and Socrates Café or Café Socrates, where people of all ages and walks of life come together and without even knowing it. They are being that change of of creating bridges instead of constructing walls. I love that idea. You talk about bringing people together to discuss and to bring up and come to new insights. But also what I really got from the book was it's bringing together your childlike self, that stage, your adolescent self, that stage, and all the stages into one being. And and I kind of thought of the idea you you talked about maybe older people kind of turning against themselves then it's almost like this cell attacking itself because it doesn't agree with how healthy it is and i conjured this image of the ouroboros you know the symbol of the snake eating its own tail and i thought isn't that a nice symbol to say you keep consuming that childhood self of yourself and you keep that cycle in permanence that's really well put sort of like a feedback loop I have to speak from my own experience. I lived a life in which all the childlike qualities were, were rather dormant, not totally, but were 90% dormant for a very long period of time. And it was through a very unique set of circumstances that led me to kind of wake up. Because if I didn't wake up and resuscitate those qualities, I don't know if you and I would even be talking right now. I don't know if I, I would still even care to have gone on living. So that's the point of the depth of despair that I personally had reached and that I suspect many people reach even if they don't share it with others, even if they continue on for any number of reasons. You know, you become a parent and you just got to survive somehow and you, you carry on. You work two or three jobs with maybe just such little time to, to take for yourself. But I think that in this, in this hairy world of so much early birth, I think that we have to arrest this development. I wish you could see sometimes the radical transformation of people who spend an hour or two at a, at a Socrates Cafe inquiry. That little childlike lens of questioning, of asking why, 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 and never being fully sated in the best sense, is suddenly turned back on. And you don't change your job, maybe. You don't change your relationship, maybe. But you keep going to a Socrates Cafe because you know it's there once a week, once a month. And you have that opportunity with fellow childlike questioners 
to keep asking why, why, why to your heart's content. One of the things that really has amazed me, and again, this wasn't my idea, Socrates Cafe started being formed at nursing homes and assisted living residences and senior centers, was that people of, of, of ages 60, 70, 80, 90, the directors of these centers and, and residences tell me that people who had never come to any of the activities that they had arranged come to a Socrates cafe and that they were stunned. People who were basically shut in would for two, three years when they experienced a Socrates cafe, suddenly they wanted to come out and reconnect with others because it wasn't just some mindless activity like bingo just to get through the day. And so again, without knowing it, it's not like I had some sort of you know, focus groups or anything. It was just completely something that I felt was lacking in my own life. Well, it turned out it was lacking in the life of so many, countless others as well. And I think that that is even more so the case today than it was when we got started. I think the level of polarization today, if I'm speaking perhaps of the U.S. and and maybe what's in, in, in many parts of Europe and elsewhere, it almost makes me nostalgic for the kind of polarization that inspired me to start this in the first place in the latter part of the 90s. But again, what do you do? You carry on. You, you fight that good fight and you say you're, you look yourself in the mirror or go up on the terrace or on a mountaintop and just ask yourself, what can I do? What, what is that modest thing that I can do to contribute to changing the course if we feel like we're navigating in a way that could lead to shipwreck? For, for self and society. And so for me, it was starting Socrates Cafe. For others, it's participating in a Socrates Cafe on an ongoing basis. I did do, when I was writing my doctoral dissertation, uh, when I was a student at a university in Australia, I actually did a survey and asked people at the groups what Socrates Cafe has done to them. Has it made them feel like they're more lo- sort of like citizens of the world, citizens, involved citizens in their community? And many of them, as a result of their participation in Socrates Cafe, began being more part of civic life in other areas and began sort of cultivating or reinstilling that sense of social conscience and duty and digging in more in their communities. And that was a revelation for me because I didn't know what to expect. But it does seem to have a, a ramifications above and beyond just that participation. But the biggest thing is they said that they have formed fast friendships with people with whom they don't see eye to eye on political matter. And it doesn't matter a whit that it doesn't matter at all, that they just have this love for one another, this sense of philia of brotherly love and connection and connectedness as a result of that participation. And I got to say, it, it, it makes me feel as good today, if not better than it did when I, when I first started hearing these things. You became the change you wanted to see in yourself. You ignited that you initiated something. So to bring it more close for a lot of us, say, for example, parents, you you talk in the book about the impact of technology on parenting and, you know, minding children. And in one of your Socrates cafes, a young girl called Kate says, my dad's digital life has taken over his person. He won't dial it back. He doesn't take the time anymore to just be with himself or with the rest of the family. I thought that was really important to pull out because it is something we're going to have to contend with more and more in the future. We have to contend with it right here and now. That's I have trouble resting myself away from all my apps on my 
smartphone, which just makes me a blithering idiot. Yeah, I have to wrest myself away from the computer and from Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all these things that can keep me from being connected with my children. You know, hours can pass by uh, on the internet, Googling this and that and the other thing. And you don't even realize it. And you do almost feel sometimes a sense of euphoria, euphoria almost like an alcoholic might uh, from taking a drink. It's addictive it, and, and in the worst sense. I actually am a little bit suspect of these relentless attempts to keep innovating all of these devices. I, I think maybe, you know, like Apple Apple Incorporated has lost about 37% of its value in the last months because they haven't come up with the next big thing. Well, is that okay? Can, can we take a break from the next big thing for a while and just deal with what we've already, what's already been introduced into our lives? And you had talked about John Dewey. Well, well Dewey, if he were alive today, he wouldn't be aghast at all of these devices. But what he would say is, let's use them not as principal means, but as instrumental means for face-to-face -face encounter. So I try my best to use the social media as a way to tell people about face-to-face -face groups. I, I at first had tried to do virtual Socrates cafes online. But it's simply not the same thing. Uh, so now I try to use social media in ways that get people to connect face to face. But I also hope uh, above and beyond, you know, I've written also two children's books, The Day of Why and The Philosopher's Club. And so those books are meant for teachers, parents and children. They're meant to serve as the same kind of way to get our older, uh, older humans and younger humans to inquire together as fellow humans, as equals, as total equals. So I'm trying to use even my own writings to, as a way to get thoughtful people to inquire as equals, to get older people to inquire with younger people. One of the dialogues I include in my book, uh, A Child at Heart, is one that takes place through intentional social engineering on my part between young people, between senior citizens and, and little ones, younger ones. And I, and the question I threw out to them was, what stage of life are you at? And it was, it was just the most wonderful dialogue because I'd just been uh, imbibing all this, you know, social sciences material and literature on what, you know, the different ages and stages that we supposedly traverse, but for some reason left me feeling rather empty. And I asked them, and this one little girl said, well, I'm at a forgetful stage <laughs> because I'm thinking so much about my this little boy who was actually in the room squirming when he realized she was talking about him. And so, it's, and so you know, kids, li our littlest and our oldest are like kindred spirits, and, and they enter as strangers to a discourse, and they leave as long-lost relative-like friends. And they are so open and honest and so desirous of asking why, 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 in a way that some of us adults in the middle ground, because we're so busy trying to just make ends meet, are not. And they have a fluid intelligence that is remarkable. And again, I'm talking about our oldest folks as well. And I try to stress in my book, A Child at Heart, that it's within all of us to live like Picasso. And that Picasso himself had his most 
was at his most creative in his 80s and, and 90s before he passed. And that's possible within us all. If, again, if we quit using crutches for why we didn't do this, why we didn't do that, because all that past dwelling and brooding, all that all that does is, is keep us from living not just in the moment, but from taking all of our past, the rich and the not so rich stuff, and giving new meaning for it by living it radically different today. And so I end that book by talking about German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And he talks about the three kinds of spirits that we humans tend to be. One is the kind of camel spirit that is rather herd-like in mentality and just goes along to get along. And the other one is the lion spirit, which may be a nonconformist, but doesn't really change the ways of the world in forms that can chart new paths and portals of being and doing and making. And then there's what Nietzsche calls so beautifully the child spirit, the eternal yes, who does say, this is the way the world is, but this isn't the way the world has to be. And who dares to have the chutzpah to actually create new values and to live new ways and to be this radical co-creator in the universe. And that's what I exhort everyone who reads my book and those who don't read my book to try to be is this childlike spirit. This eternal yes. You know, there's so many people, Aiden, who have suffered unspeakably, who continue to. I've met people who came to the U.S. from Vietnam whose, uh, whose, whose families, they lost their families as a result of all the horrors there. And yet some of them somehow have managed to still retain that childlike glint in their eyes in spite of all that they have suffered. And I ask myself, well, how... What would I do if, if the unspeakable happened to one of my child? I, I hope I never have to answer that question, though I have met many adults who have. And if they can go on, you know, and still have that childlike spirit, then then there's little excuse for me who has never had to suffer that sort of unspeakable loss to that degree, degree though I did lose my father tragically. Um, how do we go on? My, my book itself, as I say, is a, uh, is this testament of what we can do out of great pain that uh, I don't strive to live a happy life, Aiden. I strive to live a meaningful life that does entail suffering. Suffering can be the springboard from some of the most incredible experiences imaginable. I hope there's certain things I never have to suffer through. I hope that I never have to, to lose a loved young person as so many that I have encountered have. One of the places that I go is to hospitals and I engage in discourse with children and youth with life-threatening and terminal illnesses and to be privy to their, to their insights. And what's always so surprising is their joie de vivre. They, they don't, they're not maudlin. They're um, questioning and curious and they have a rather timeless quality to them. They don't think about when time is up, but what to make of the time that I have here and now. And if we adults could all have that opportunity, at least maybe through reading these dialogues in my books, then maybe we will make a better tomorrow for one and all. What a beautiful way to finish today's show. Christopher, where can people find out more about you, Socratic Inquiry, and Socrates Cafes, for example? Our website, SocratesCafe.com, there's a drop-down list of all of our ongoing gatherings that I know about of Socrates Cafe and Democracy Cafe the world over. 
There, uh, if they, there's also a facilitator's guide on how to start a Socrates Cafe or a Philosopher's Club for young people. They can access all of that on our SocratesCafe.com website. It's part of our nonprofit group. They also can go to my personal website, ChristopherPhillips.com, which also serves as a portal to uh, my YouTube channel, which features lots of my Socrates Cafe dialogues, one-on-one dialogues with my own children, which is such a beautiful thing. I hope that they treasure those long after I'm no longer here. And they might also, if organizations might want to go to our SocratesGroup.org site to where I've because I do go not just uh, I have a for-profit arm, which isn't a bad thing uh, to to go into the private sector in ways that create greater connectedness among employees and, and maybe create a better sense of all for one and one for all ethos where we sort of break down hierarchies. And, and again, one of my goals in this world is to expand and f- instill this form of inquiry wherever we happen to be. So if I work a job in the federal government, well, gosh darn it, I want to go there and I want to show people how to engage in this kind of inquiry. So it could be a maybe something during a brown bag lunch that people engage in because some people simply can't or won't go to a public library or some other space. That by and large is where people find and, and, and about our work. It's a fantastic legacy to leave. Founder of Socrates Cafe, maverick philosopher and author of A Child at Heart, Unlocking Creativity curiosity and reason at every age and stage of life. Christopher Phillips, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much.